fun weekend. I really enjoyed being with you. Love, love, love worshipping with you. You guys know how to do it, don't you? There's so much joy and celebration. Man, I think sometimes we take ourselves so seriously, but just to take Jesus seriously and delight in him, it's wonderful. So thank you. You have blessed me so much being here with you, and I'm told I need to keep this close to my mouth this time, not let it drop and then deafen all of you. Um, lovely to see Andrew at the back there. Andrew Bunt's here, my good friend. I said to Andrew, and I saw him the other week, that I was speaking here, and I said, oh, are you going to be joining us? And he said he couldn't. And I thought, is it because I'm speaking, Andrew, that you <laughs> didn't come? I love Andrew, one of my favorite humans. And um, it was so much fun yesterday being here with my family. They love playing the football. Uh, in fact, um, my seven-year-old missed a header, and he spent the rest of the day saying, oh, I wish I scored, Dad, I wish I scored. But today, I brought with me uh, a friend of mine, Luke, from the church in Seaford, who's a semi-professional footballer. So if we want to have another game... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but if you want to have another game, I've brought reinforcements this time. <laughs> so this is our final session together. Uh, it's been an honor to be able to open God's Word with you. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to read the whole of chapter 1. If you, if you want to get your Bibles open or um, yeah, open or open the apps or whatever you do with your Bibles, we're going to read there in a moment. We've looked at kind of... It's a bit of a mini health check, like how are we in relation to others? Do we seek the attention of other people more than we seek the attention of God? It was Friday night, and actually that theme after preaching it, I just noticed it popping up throughout the New Testament. I was reading it this morning in James in our time of worship. Paul says similar in Galatians 1, if I was still trying to please people, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. We've got to be those who seek the attention of God. And then yesterday, we looked at us and our relationship to God as our Father and ask the question, how do you view God? How do you think he views you? Today I want to bring, I guess, what I think is a, a bit more of a provocative word to stir us and challenge us and encourage us as we think about us and re our relationship to the world, but also the Lord's people and how much he loves, uh, he loves his church. And so I want to pray, and then as I said, we'll read from Nehemiah. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, what an honor to be with your people in your company. I pray that you'd take these words of mine and do something with them in us, Lord. I pray that you'd disillusion us, you'd wake us up from any illusions that we're in, and you'd direct our steps. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So Nehemiah, for those of you who aren't familiar, it was written... Um, during the time of the exile, or just toward the end of that, where God's people are slaves, strangers in a foreign land. Nehemiah, they find themselves like Spider-Man, far from home. Uh, they find themselves slaves to an empire in the heart of the enemy's camp. Um, but we're going to read something that happens that changes everything about the way Nehemiah perceives his purpose in life. So chapter 1, here we go. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped, who'd survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down. And I wept, and I mourned for days. 
And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're dispersed under the Father's skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of God. And we're going to begin and end in the same place. In verse 11, where he says, now I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to start with that as an idea. We're going to drift off from it, and then we're going to come back to it. Like when children are learning to swim. They hold on to the side, let go, swim for a bit, and then come back to a place of clarity and safety. What I want to start with acknowledging is this. What's prominent about Nehemiah isn't the thing that's most dominant in his mind. What's prominent? So he was a cupbearer to the king, we're told. I was cupbearer to the king, which is an important and influential position in the land. He was essentially the highest civil servant. He was trusted to check for poisons before the king drank from the cup or ate. He was like an equivalent of a beef eater. Wherever the king went, the cupbearer would go with him. It was a prominent position. It was what stood out about Nehemiah. And you have, we all have, prominent things about us that... When people meet you, they notice them. It may be something about your physical appearance. You know, I've got a friend who's very tall, and every time I've been with him, every time he meets people, the first thing they say is, oh, you're tall. (laughs) Oh, you're tall. I was like, you wouldn't say that if they were fat, would you? Oh, you're fat. (laughs) But we do that with height. Or, oh, you've got a big nose. No, but there are things, there are things about us that are prominent that get noticed straight away. But what's prominent doesn't need to be what's dominant about us. What I mean is this. This position that he held wasn't the thing that was clearest in his mind. It wasn't the way that he defined himself. Hi, I'm Nehemiah. I'm the cupbearer to the king. I'm kind of a big deal around here. He didn't do that. No, what was dominant in his mind was awoken by this phrase. I asked them concerning the Jews who'd escaped. What's dominant, what's on his mind is his people his countrymen, his family. And the course of Nehemiah's life is arrested and awoken by a few words that they reply. The walls of Jerusalem are down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Four words. The walls are down. The shame that his people suffered in the exile remains on them. Their insecurity and vulnerability is as real as ever. His country, his family, his people, everything he loves and holds dear in the world is unprotected, it is weak, and it is vulnerable to attack. He's 
that's what's awoken in him, his love for his people. And more than that, he understands it's not just that his people are, are vulnerable, it's that God's glory, the hope of the world, is in ruins. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. He discovers the thing that ends up defining him, the, the reason people know about this man in history at all is because he's moved to anguish. He's moved in prayer, and he responds to the way God leads him. What's dominant in you? What's your deepest love? What would move you to respond as he did? What is there that you might hear or become aware of that would so rock you to your core that you can't help like Nehemiah did than to fast and pray for days and mourn and weep? The church in our land is not in a particularly healthy place in a lot of respects. We are a mocked people, a despised people by some. But more than that, our countrymen are suffering the further they drift from their felt understanding of the light that Christ brought to us, of the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. The more our country lets go of that, the more it suffers as a result. The way that I often respond to things that I hear in the news shocks me because it reveals to me that I don't generally care too much about things outside of my immediate vicinity. I'm not moved to tears by the evil in the world in the way that I perhaps should be, in the way that God is. So I want us to consider firstly the state of our countrymen and women, people that we live around, there's a, a cost of living crisis, as we're aware of. Food Bank in the last year provided 2.9 million emergency meals for people, which is a 37% increase on last year, the year before that. Our health service and staff are at stretching and breaking point. Any of you work in the health sector know the strain and stress that you're under. There's something like an 18-week appointment, uh, a waiting list for a routine hospital appointment. Our teachers and our nurses are striking. And in the past year alone, we've heard in our national press about um, almost like an epidemic of sexual, cases of sexual assault in various industries, from the government, the NHS, to the BBC, and even recently to McDonald's. Fast food chain, not even restaurants are beyond reproach. <laughs> the ONS, the, the Office of National Statistics, reported last year that they saw um, that last year saw the highest rates of knife crime in the UK for 75 years, which is when recording began. And the largest increase among cases of, of knife violence was among teenage boys. We obviously have, within Europe, the war in Ukraine that's affected the entire world that's, uh, and has seen the, the relocation of 174,000 people to the UK. There's a mental health crisis among our young people on top of all of that. The walls are down in our country. The walls are down. Now, I've just come back from New Day a couple of weeks ago, and I want us just to, I mentioned the mental health crisis, particularly affecting our young people. I want to stay there for a moment and consider our young people. Uh, we, we've seen a 39% increase in one year in referrals for mental health treatment among the under-18s. 39% increase in one year. 
Uh, they've seen a huge increase in referrals for young people confused about their gender identity. In 2009, there were 72 referrals nationally for teens seeking help. In 2018, there was 2,590. 2,590 young people so distressed about something that for so many of us is so basic and normal, but so almost a, two and a half thousand people so distressed that they're seeking help to relieve their distress. It's really sad. I want us also to consider what our young people have faced in recent years. In the past three years alone, every young person has lived through this. There was COVID, which meant that they found themselves out of schools for the better part of a year, um, which meant and brought with it the loss of all rhythms that brought them stability and structure and a sense of calm. Uh, they were aware of a daily death count in their pockets, on their phones every day, on their TVs, every day being told how many thousands died this day and that day and this day and that day, every day being aware of death. They witnessed uh, on TV or on social media the death of George Floyd, uh, which resulted in global protests. It was a 16-year-old who started the petition that got 90 million signatures for the arrest of the police officer involved. We've heard about the police in the past couple of years um, being responsible for the kidnapping and rape of young women. The police, people who young people think are meant to be there to protect us. Trust in that institution has been undermined. On top of that, there's been a lack of leadership in government, um, an inauthentic leadership at best, um, where they would make a rule and then break it themselves. And they experienced a time where a wet lettuce lasted longer than a prime minister. Do you remember that? Of course, we'll mention the war in Ukraine, but the way that that's particularly affected our young people is it's the first war in history where they've been able to view it for themselves on TikTok. Um, short clips of people being blown up every day on their phones should it get pushed into their timeline. They experienced in the last year the death of our queen. Uh, and while the, the death of the queen may not have affected them, it, every young person in the same way, the death of the queen represented the death of the one thing that they all knew was a stable constant in their society until that point. On top of all this, there's the increasing alarmism about the change in our climate that's resulting in fear and panic among our young people. There's a, a kind of well-known image that I read a book that talked about this picture of a young girl holding up a sign in protest that read, um, you'll die of old age, I'll die of climate change. That's the anxiety that our young people feel about the future that awaits them. You know, those are three or four or five or six major things that every young person has had to navigate in the past few years alone. Every one of them would have been big enough for one generation to walk through. But for our young people, they're trying to process them all at once, all the time whilst sitting in the dark of their bedrooms with their faces lit up by the glow of their personal devices on screens and things that fuel anxiety, distort reality, elevate comparison-related insecurity, and get them addicted to pornography. It's reported that among young people, 25% of 18 to 30-year-olds admit to watching porn at least once a week. It's a quarter of young people who are having their vision and image of reality distorted, their, how they perceive and relate to the opposite sex distorted. 
I would add if I was on a soapbox, the Barbie movie is then thrown into this mix. I watched it the other day for research purposes, you understand. <laughs> for research purposes, you understand. But the Barbie movie, the thing that struck me as I watched that, it made me very sad because it is a, a movie that essentially says that the relationship between the sexes is one of battle and struggle. And if you're a woman, you are in constant daily battle against this thing called patriarchy. Now that changes the way that people relate to one another if that's how they think of the primary interaction between people, men and women. Something as basic and fundamental to society's fabric as that. The walls are down. And young people, all people, but young people need our compassion and they need intentional relationships being built with them. They need many of you to talk to them, to love them. And I know if you're, if you're like in, uh, many of the people in my church, you might sit there thinking, I don't think I've got anything to offer a young person. I wouldn't know how to relate to them. And let me tell you, that's not true. Young people need older uncles and aunties and mothers and fathers more than anything in a time like this. Again, where more boys have smartphones in their pockets than they do have dads in their homes. The church is a family. We mustn't retreat into our, our so-called nuclear or organic families when the Lord has called us beyond that. This is the family. The nuclear family is meant to be a shadow of this. And we must prioritize that in the way that we relate to one another. Take a young person out for an ice cream. Ask them questions about their lives. You haven't got to give them wisdom. You've just got to show interest in them. All anyone ever wants is to be known and loved. And you're never too old to do that. It was so thrilling to Amy and I yesterday to, to see that Jude. I won't, I've, having embarrassed Judith on Friday night, I'll, I'll make up for it now by embarrassing her again. Um, <laughs> to see Judith sat around doing games for the children, like, as far as I can remember, that is Judith doing games for children and loving young people, telling them about Jesus, is a constant establishment in my life. As far as I've ever known it, Judith, that is what she does. And John, they love young people and they teach them about Jesus. When I arrived to Eastbourne as a 21-year-old who'd just become a Christian, didn't know what I was doing, there was Judith to light the way. And now here I am as a 40-year-old. Uh, and Judith's still doing it. It's such a wonderful treat. Anyway. So, that, that, there we go, yeah. <laughs> That's, that makes up for my seven-year-old calling you hot. <laughs> Those of you who missed that, we now have to ask her what I mean. So that's as we consider the, the, the society, perhaps, that we're around. But, for, of course, Nehemiah, it wasn't just the fact that his, his people were suffering and struggling that cut him to the quick. It was... He, he was grieved over the state of the glory of God. The, the people of Israel carried the hope of the world, and here they were in ruins. The people of God who had the law of God, the spirit of God, being in an environment like this of joy and jubilation, you've got something to celebrate and sing about because the spirit is here among you. The favor of God is upon you. Jesus said, you are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, of what use is it to anyone? Peter says that you're a set-apart people, a people who've been walled off. For, to, you belong to God. You've been separated from the world. You're chosen and beloved of the Father. Nehemiah grieved the destruction of the physical temple, but you are, we are, 
the temple of God now on earth. If people want to meet the living God, they don't need to go on a pilgrimage. They need to go to church on Sunday morning because that's where the holy God dwells, is among his people. And I find myself sadder and sadder when I talk to friends of mine who aren't Christians because I see in them instincts towards righteousness and virtue, religion even, that is commendable and admirable, but they're getting bound up in legalism and law because there's no grace outside of Christ. Every other attempt at righteousness and justification ends in a trap of self-justification and legalism, whether it's recycling or saving the planet or changing society or fixing the problems or tearing down structures. All of it binds you up if you're trying to use that to save you and to satisfy your soul. And I talk to my friends, and this is what they do. I was part, I was fascinating to me. I was in this conversation with two people. I, I mentioned climate change a few times now. It's not like a big thing of mine. But I was in a conversation with two people where they were essentially trying to one, better one another with how much they're doing to save the world. And one friend of mine, bless him, his family went on holiday to Cyprus, his wife and his kids, but he refused to go because he didn't want to add to the trouble of the carbon footprint, etc., and there's a part of me that thinks, wow, that's really commendable and noble. But there's another part of me that thinks, oh, you're, you're living in religion. There's no salvation for you. And your family are now condemned because they're flying. <laughs> it's dividing homes. I don't judge these people. I'm just saying it's sad because they would never think that the church had anything to offer them. That's what saddens me. You know, 30%, only 30, yeah, 30% of non-Christians in England have never knowingly or don't know another Christian. Have never knowingly met or don't know another Christian. 30%, a third of people in our country have never knowingly met a practicing Christian. And what they do see of the, and hear about the church isn't necessarily going to incline them towards finding a Christian or a church. What do they hear and see? Well, listen to this. Listen to what someone who isn't a Christian writes about the church. This was written in, a, in the Daily Mail in an article called uh, You Can't Sell Faith Like Cornflakes. This is, what they, this is what the journalists put. Over the last generation, a process of demoralization has set in among the clergy. Watching their flocks diminish, they are tempted to hold less strongly to their own convictions, or rather they found secular substitutes for a dogmatic religious faith which is waning. In place of the Christianity of the Ten Commandments, they've put the Christianity of social welfare. They concern themselves with what they imagine are burning topical issues. They preach sermons on unemployment, and they behave as if they were little more than social workers. They are almost invariably well-meaning, progressive-minded, humanitarian, and caring and compassionate. But there is nothing much to distinguish these high-minded bishops, deans, canons, and reverends from any other category of do-gooders. They are manifestly not divinely inspired, and there is not much faith in their hearts or fire in their bellies, and it shows. At the same time, the churches have watered down their teaching on almost all aspects of morality. If a young person seeks guidance today on, on their sexual conduct, for instance, they are no longer offered definite rules. They are instead given polysyllabic fudge and mush. They prefer to operate with the techniques of modern sociology and are getting absolutely nowhere. It was a non-Christian journalist. I said it was written in the Daily Mail. I didn't tell you when it was written. 
It was written in 1983. How about now? What would they write now? When bishops are saying that they want to bless what the Bible calls sin, uh, or even having discussions about whether or not we should use gender-neutral terms to address God, our great parent in heaven. One global commentator whose videos and podcasts are regularly downloaded by millions of listeners across the world, he produced a message to the church. And in it, he said to the church, he said, Protestants, you guys are the worst. Quit fighting for social justice, quit saving the planet, and attend to some souls. That's what you're supposed to do. Friends, this is what, this is what the world, or one side of the world, is perhaps saying about the church. The walls are down. The church is looking more and more like the world, less and less confident in the light that Christ gave it, in the truth and beauty of God's word, more and more colonized by secular ideas, using Christian language to baptize what is essentially spiritual neglect. And the concern and the problem with this is the gospel can't be guessed. If you lose it, you can't guess it. The church are meant to be brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, aunties and uncles, who are the family of God, delighting in the truth, the oracles of God, and looking to order their lives in light of what he has said to us. Because he knows best. So the question then is, how, how does Nehemiah respond? How should we respond in light of all of that? Well, in verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah wept. He wept and he prayed. He felt the weight and grief of anguish of the thing. And I tell you, unless and until you've wept over the rubble, you'll never so much as build a wall. When churches struggle to get people committed and engaged in the things that they're trying to do. It may be that churches are trying to be too busy and busying themselves with unessential things, but it may also be that there aren't enough people in the church who've properly wept over the rubble or care much for the ruins or the glory of what God's doing in the church. Where are the children's workers or the youth workers? Where are the people who are willing to pastor and preach and organize and serve where are they? We sometimes are guilty of having a half-hearted attitude towards the glory of God in the church. People I know are very passionate about sport, very passionate about their interior design and latest housing project, very passionate about making money. But when it comes to the glory of God that is the church, I'd like to leave it to someone else, please. I'd, can I just let professionals do it? Can I sit back and be a spectator? And having been here, I know that isn't necessarily something that you would suffer from particularly. I know what it is to be renting a school hall and setting it up and down each week. I know how tiring that is. I know the graft of that. I tell you, the only way, the only, the only way you're able to carry on doing that is when you aren't depending on your own enthusiasm for the thing, but that you have seen... And you, or you've seen a vision of the glory of God in the church and you've wept over the rubble of the church. 
You know, I do think that our emotions are often windows into our loves and the things that we're particularly passionate about. I remember one particular time several years ago where um, I had a new iPad when they were quite new, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm an, a member of the cult of Apple. Um, apologies for that. I'm seeking help for it. Um, or maybe I should just destroy my idol. Um, but I remember I got a new iPad, and one of my kids broke it because they, they're careless and they're children, and I'd like to put some up for adoption sometimes. <laughs> but they broke it, and I was so angry, like proper full-on rage. I, I vented a little bit, and then I stormed out to my office in the garden, and I just vented and got so angry. And, and then this little, still small voice popped up in my heart. We'll call it the Lord. And it said, it's funny the things you get angry about. I've never seen you this angry about injustice. <laughs> I felt chastised that day. Jesus says this, pray that God sends workers out. Pray that people weep over the rubble and see a vision of the glory of God. And that word, that, when Jesus says, pray that the Father sends workers into the harvest field, that word send is the same word that's used for casting a demon out of someone. It's a strong, forceful word. Pray that the Father evicts, casts out, compels workers into the harvest field. Because when, when you're running on your enthusiasm, it will burn out quick. But when you're running on a God-given impetus to go with something that's hot and hard to handle and is hard and heavy, like, say, an extreme example, Wilberforce running to overturn and illegal, make slavery illegal, Something like that, the glory of God, that's too hot and heavy and hard for anyone to hold by themselves. It needs God to do the work. And that's the thing with Nehemiah. Notice, he doesn't rush to activism. His first thought isn't, let's get a building committee. <laughs> he doesn't jump onto Twitter and start tapping away his opinions and feelings and thoughts and anger at what's happened in the world. Instead, he hides away. Nehemiah retreats to the secret place, and for days, he's alone with God, in agony. As we said on Friday night, our cultural moment is one of public attention-seeking, or public virtue-signaling, or public venting of our opinions. We'd much rather appear virtuous than to actually be virtuous, partly because being good is a lot harder than looking good, anyone who's tried it for any long. But also because ranting online about a thing makes me feel powerful. It gets the thing off my chest. But as I was talking with Luke in the car on the way over here, I'm not sure if it ever really achieves anything. I rant on Twitter, but what does it do? If we've understood the size of the task ahead of us, our response will be one of hiddenness and prayer long before we do anything else. You see, it's too, too big a job for any of us Nehemiah knows he's essentially a slave to the superpower of his day. What power does he have? He understands that. His people are despised. He sees that they don't stand a chance. And if we don't understand that, instead we'll end up being like the men and women who tried to build the tower into the heavens. Remember Babel? Remember that story? They tried to do something glorious that says to make a name for themselves. And the next verse is the key in that story because it says, it says that they tried to build a tower into the heavens and it says that God in the heavens came down to see the tower that they were building. 
because he couldn't see it from where he was. Nehemiah is ruined by God, utterly in anguish. And I'd like us to to watch a a clip now of um, a man named David Wilkerson. Those of you, some of you will be familiar with this clip, or even David Wilkerson himself. He was an American evangelist who's famous, made famous for his work among gangs, particularly in New York. He says that his life changed when in 1958 he saw a photograph in a magazine of seven teenagers caught up in the gangs. And moved with compassion, he tracked down the court hearing that they were in, broke into the courtroom and asked the judge if he could tell them something first. He wanted to tell them the gospel. He was ejected from the courtroom, but he went on to found Teen Challenge, which is a recovery organization among troubled teenagers. And most famously, God used him in the conversion of Nicky Cruz, a notorious gang leader who threatened to knife him. In fact, if you've seen the film of the story, um, Nicky Cruz threatens to, to kill and chop up David Wilkinson with his knife. And Wilkinson responds by saying, he says, Nicky, you could cut me up into a thousand pieces, but every one of those pieces would cry out, Jesus loves you, Nicky. That's what he says. And um, at his church in Times Square, um, he preached a sermon on Nehemiah and Nehemiah's anguish. And I find this video so moving. Let's watch this together. And I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. And he would find a praying man, and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now, folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, 
not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there's such a coldness sweeping the land? And I'm going to tell you something. I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching, if it is not born in anguish, if it has not been born by the Holy Spirit, where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees, took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God, I know now, oh my God, do I know it, until I'm in agony, until I have been anguished over it, and all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do, where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing and they're going to hell? You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. There's going to be no renewal, no revival. No awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. Build the walls around your family. Build the walls around your own heart. Make you strong and impregnable against the enemy. God, that's what we desire. David Wilkerson died in a car accident in 2011. The walls are down. And I want us to finish where we started. I was cupbearer to the king. See, what was prominent about Nehemiah wasn't dominant, but what was prominent about him was put to good purpose. He leveraged his position and he made it serve the thing that God had created him for. So how about you? Will you allow God to burden you with a passion for Zion, his people and his glory? Will you build Will you repair whatever the things are that are going on in King's Church, Bexhill, where the needs are? Will you commit? Will you love? Will you put your hand to the plow? Twelve years ago, I know I, I first saw that, that video. And in that moment, I, I told God I was all in. Um, having kind of gone back and forth about what I wanted to do with my life. I said, God, I'm all in. And then a few months later, my family and I packed up and moved from Eastbourne to Seaford. 
to do something that generally, genuinely, been very hard and most of the time discouraging in church. You don't, it's not about glories and hallelujahs a lot of the time. It's just a, a slow graft of loving people, trying to share the word, trying to be faithful in prayer to God, trying to be sensitive to the spirit and trusting God day in, day out. And I think it's with a life like that that the Lord's able to build something over time and he's able to satisfy it. So let me pray as we close. And um, yeah, Father, Father, we come. Lord. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for this group of people. Your bride, you love. Would you make us people who live for your attention? Would you make us people who see you properly as our Father? And would you make us people who love your bride, the church? Thank you, Lord. We don't need to feel the weight of saving the church. There's only one Messiah. We don't need to carry that burden. It's yours. But, Lord, neither do we want to waste the opportunity of our life that you've given us. Lord, we commit our hearts, our lives to you. We say, Lord, use us. Lord, send us. Lord, satisfy our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you, good man. Hopefully we've um, all caught something of what God intends to highlight.